0: Welcome to International Law Talk of Wolters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields.
1: Hello, my name is Krina Baltag and I'm the editor of Kluwer Arbitration blog and senior lecturer in international arbitration at Stockholm University. For today's podcast, I invited Professor Patricia Shaughnessy from Stockholm University. It is a privilege for me to be the interviewer of Professor Shaughnessy, my professor of international arbitration during my master's studies, my mentor and now my dear colleague at Stockholm University. The topic of today's podcast is emergency arbitration. Welcome, Patricia. And uh, the first uh, question uh, relates to your successful career in international arbitration. You are an inspiration to all of us.
0: Well, thank you, Karina. It's really a pleasure and a privilege to be interviewed by you and to be on this podcast. Um, I'm looking forward to our discussion on emergency arbitration.
1: Uh, Patricia, uh, uh, undoubtedly you have extensive arbitration experience and uh, part of it, something that you you haven't mentioned, is also uh, of of the SEC, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce Arbitration Institute, as a member of the board and later as the vice chair of the board. Um, And to to enter the topic of our discussion today, uh, the SEC was one of the first arbitration institutions to launch the emergency arbitration rules in January 2010. Can you tell us a bit about this moment, what led to this innovation and perhaps if there were any concerns or issues anticipated at that point?
0: Um, yes, it was at the time uh, quite an innovative and new tool. There were some, um, uh, there were some provisions at ICDR and there was a, uh, early relief provision that wasn't actually emergency arbitration at the, uh, Netherlands Arbitration Institute. So we were really taking a big step, but probably following in the wake of the 2006 amendments to the model, UNSATRA model law introducing extensive um, intermeasures um, provisions into the act, there have been lots of discussion about the need for effective intermeasures within the context and the autonomy of arbitration. And so this was a need that we found um, was not met under the current regulation because it required an existing tribunal to be in place in order to apply for such remedies. So in this gap between Um, When a party needed that relief and preferred to get it within the autonomous uh, context of an arbitration rather than a national court, there was a gap until the arbitrators were constituted. And so filling that need, we created the emergency arbitration rules, which at the time were very innovative and robust, not the least because they applied retroactively and that they could be um, engaged, they could apply for the rules, and the rules would be engaged in an emergency arbitrator appointed before the commencement of arbitral proceedings.
1: Now, if we we look a bit at the type of disputes uh, for the emergency arbitration, um, I remember that uh, not long ago, uh, the SEC has issued a very interesting report on the emergency arbitration, a decade in review, And there is a, there are very interesting uh, points made there uh, based on the, on the number, on the cases, on the emergency arbitration cases submitted between 2010 and 2019. And the types of disputed agreement um, shows from uh, intellectual property to credit loan construction and so on. Do you see, um, uh, first of all, what, in your opinion, what are the suitable types of disputes? And second, if you see any differences um, in the use of of emergency arbitration in commercial versus investment disputes.
0: Well, that's a big question to unpack, and I'll try to do it um, briefly. And uh, the primary purpose of emergency arbitration is to provide the parties with urgently needed relief at the outset of the dispute before the tribunal is in place. So the cases in which it is best suited are just those cases, ones where urgent relief is needed. And that can arise in a number of, of uh, situations, particularly when one is seeking to have status quo um measures, sometimes called at least in in the U.S., uh, stop the bleeding measures, continue the deliveries, uh, continue to perform under the contract, um, things which are going to um, ensure that the situation of the case does not suddenly deteriorate to the great disadvantage in a manner which would not be easily reparable by damages. At the end of the case, and so this can be um, cases involving sale of goods. It can be the services um, under a contract, particularly service contracts which require rather immediate um, performance. It can also be, um, for example, if there's a pending sale of the shares in a company which uh, which the party, which would be requesting the relief, would say would dramatically change the situation and in an irretrievable way. Uh, It could even be relating to freezing of assets, um, and it could be uh, uh, other kinds of situations. So it can um, be services, it can be governance. It can be in various industries. So there are many different types, and not the least in construction cases that we'll see, that there may be measures relating to stopping the call on a a bond or other things within the construction or infrastructure projects. Um, Moving to treaty cases, um, they can appear also in various ways. It could be um, measures which are about to take place, which are going to um, dramatically affect the current situation in ways which will, again, um, result in irretrievable um, uh, impact to the party seeking the measures. And that could be various regulatory measures or re- various takings or, or dissipation of, of um, activities that cannot be retrieved. So it's really difficult to come up with a more specific category than that.
1: But it's very interesting to note that uh, emergency arbitration is uh, is uh, suitable for various types of disputes and uh, and uh, this is one thing that uh, we we need to obviously take into account and uh, and uh, very useful for arbitration, which uh, we know it's uh, it's an evolving um, field uh, and speaking of this um, uh, how is the emergency arbitrator Interactive, interacting with other pre-arbitral procedures, with like cooling off periods, or mediation. Yes, here as well, we we see a development in let's say appropriate dispute settlement for the dispute. So one expects that there is quite an interaction between various type of types of dispute settlement mechanisms. Where is the emergency arbitration uh, sitting in with, within this range of uh, of uh, mechanisms? Well,
0: I would say in the early stages, this was something that um, uh, had people a little concerned about how one would deal with cooling off periods and and with um, mediation obligations and other such things in the context of emergency arbitration. And uh, indeed, uh, the first ICC case um, fell into that category. And in that treaty case... It, there was a cooling off period, and that uh, arbitration, emergency arbitration award, made its way for enforcement in Ukraine, and and uh, people can follow that. It's been written about in the Clover blog and such. The GNX case, you can see how the courts dealt with the issue of the cooling off period. So I would venture to say that this can remain an issue, but just as these gateway issues in regular arbitration, are starting to evolve into a modern trend. We see the recent Sierra Leone case from the UK High Court. We see a recent CNDC case, I think it's called, from Hong Kong in May, where these kind of gateway issues are seen as admissibility rather than jurisdictional, preventing jurisdiction. And those will probably be influencing how we deal with gateway issues, in emergency arbitration as well. And one can certainly make the argument that by putting in uh, measures that are designed to prevent the rapid deterioration of the situation, that it actually will carve out space for the parties to be able to engage in cooling off negotiations, mediation, etc.
1: You're referring earlier to the need of an urgent relief. um, And probably we think that this would be the gateway criteria. Um, My question would be, is this one of the factors or indeed the gateway criteria that the emergency arbitrator will take into consideration when issuing the decision?
0: It's an excellent question. Um, definitely an intermeasure by its nature indicates that there's some need for some measure now rather than waiting to to receive relief later. But in the context of an emergency arbitration then the question is raised should there be some kind of hyper urgency or or more uh, a higher degree of urgency? Or to put more simply, is there a reason why you can't wait? until the regular tribunal is constituted, that you must get this now. And so whether or not that's a gateway issue or one of the criteria is not entirely settled. It was addressed in the ICC task force report from 2018. And um, as I recollect, it was indicated as, as not being settled I think that we probably are starting to see some evolution of practice where we can start to see trends, but it's still a bit early to identify trends under all rules and and across the globe in this area because, um, for one, these cases are not readily observed because of confidentiality and because of the nature of the decision doesn't necessarily make it to courts very frequently. Allowing for review. But um, uh, I'm not going to recommend the position, but I would say that anyone seeking to get emergency arbitration ought to present in its application um, a reason why it is urgent and the relief is needed now and, and cannot await the Constitution of the tribunal.
1: Are there any other criteria that? parties should uh, present or the the emergency arbitrator consider? Or is there any suggestion perhaps how to deal with this, um, I would say, rather at the early stage of the procedure? Um, Well, the the
0: criteria which is um, applied by arbitrators, again, it's difficult to uncover the practice to a great extent. Um, But it, it seems to be evolving. And And it it seems that um, there are certain indications that arbitrators are looking more to the um, sources such as the UNCITRAL model law, Article 17 criteria for regular interim relief and using that criteria about the proportionality, the need Um, because of the risk of harm, the inability to be adequately compensated with damages at a later stage. And so these kinds of criteria are moving in. Um, Others don't seem to really apply a, a standard or um, what I wouldn't recommend is that arbitrators seek to apply the standards from their national procedural codes, assuming that they seem to represent some kind of um, generally accepted standard. But this is something I think that the emergency arbitrator um, should discuss at the very first Emergency arbitration case management conference with the parties because the parties should uh, be able to know what is going to be required as the criteria for assessing the application.
1: Now, if if we look at the emergency arbitrator uh, and we're, you're referring to the case management conference, um, the natural question would be uh, how how about what is required in such a procedure from an emergency arbitrator? Uh, And on this note, if you think that there is a profile or a suitable profile of uh, an ideal emergency arbitrator.
0: (laughs) Um, The ideal arbitrator is the right arbitrator for that case. Uh, It might be um, that you need an arbitrator that has some experience with that particular sector because it's a specialized sector and they they're not going to have time to get up and running they need to understand how things work and the terminology and uh, and that's in that sectors sphere and it an emergency arbitrator needs to be a Highly experienced arbitrators. Um, operating in the emergency room, as Mark Cantor likes to call it, is not for beginners. You need to be able to make quick, decisive decisions. You need to be able to jump immediately into efficient, effective case management in very constrained time. You need to be able to, as what I call, deliver justice on the run and be able to make these Quick decisions and afford the parties adequate and fair due process in the procedures, which leads me a bit to the first part of your question you know, how do they set it up? You're going to have to work quickly to get a case management conference with the parties to determine how to set it up. And you're going to, and under emergency arbitration, the concepts of due process, equal treatment, right to be heard, those are still in place, but of course, they must be adapted to what is reasonable under the circumstances of an emergency arbitration, and bearing in mind that this is a limited interim measure, which the later tribunal can either continue or can terminate, if it didn't terminate according to the 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 rules, or can make a new, can make a, a, a tribunal can make new measures as may be needed. So the due process requirements need to be adjusted as to the case management um, details and how it will be conducted.
1: Now, when we uh, we recall that we're referring to the gaps and maybe the, uh, the challenges uh, with the emergency arbitration procedures. Um, and I recall at the beginning uh, when emergency arbitration has started to emerge, One preferred topic of of debate was uh, the enforceability of the emergency arbitrator decisions. Um, Where do you think we are after uh, some years? Uh, Is this still a a, a point of concern or we're past this?
0: Well I think it's 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 evolving and it's still a point of concern so that's something that a party who's considering applying for emergency um measures may want to think about whether or not enforceability is a significant issue but indeed it can even if it's not enforced it can have great benefits because most parties in an arbitration um take Seriously, their obligation to arbitrate in good faith and to observe any orders that are made by the emergency arbitrator or regular arbitrators. And if for no other reason, they don't want to perhaps look bad or have negative inferences drawn from um, their uh not following the orders on so there may be some uh, benefits to having the order in place and indeed in in some emergency arbitrations the parties are able to actually work out some agreed way to deal with the requested measure in order to um to put the status quo uh, situation into into hold but when it comes to the court enforcement under the model law, of course, Article 17, Unsutra model law, Article 17, there are provisions for enforcement of interim measures. And so if one considers emergency arbitration as arbitration, that one could say, well, that would apply even to emergency arbitration orders. Um, that isn't a black and white question, but a good case could be made for that. Um, when it comes to, Having awards enforced that are made by emergency arbitrators, and many um, many of the arbitral rules allow that. The SEC, the CAC, and others. Well, some such as the ICC only allow for the decision to be in the form of an order, not an award. But when it comes to one that's in the form of an award, um, then you enter into the already controversial landscape of whether or not an interim award would constitute an award under the New York Convention, and you will see some disparate. Um, approaches on that in practice and in commentary. Uh, we do see some cases early on in the U.S. in which emergency arbitrator decisions were enforced. We've seen it in the context of even in investment decisions. Uh, so a, a case can be made. Uh, a part of the problem is that while these emergency arbitrator orders or awards are in the process of enforcement, they may expire because they had, just like Cinderella's um, coach became a pumpkin at midnight, and her uh, clothes became rags, and her coachmen became mice. An emergency arbitrator um, decision, in the form of an order or an award, has a short lifespan.
1: Going back uh, to how emergency arbitration, uh, I would say, as a as a as a tool, maybe interacts with the other types of uh, of uh, arbitrations, and in particular with expedited arbitration, we, we referred a little to, to this earlier in the podcast, but specifically uh, because we we are uh, probably going to see another podcast on, on the, the topic of uh, expedited arbitration. How do you see the emergency arbitration working together or not with expedited arbitration and um, Is it suited? Uh, Do do you think that the case is uh, already showing an increase of of the use of um, uh, emergency arbitration in the context of expedited arbitration, remembering that both are probably the fastest uh, arbitrations uh, that we have?
0: Well, I'm glad you bring that up because um, I'm surprised how many um, uh, users – Confuse expedited arbitration with emergency arbitration or lump them together into one classification of fast-track arbitration. And indeed, emergency arbitration is a form of interim relief, a provisional remedy that is obtained prior to the dispute actually being adjudicated in the arbitration.
1: Patricia, I think we're at the end of the podcast, but uh, time time flies when when uh, when talking to you, and uh, it is always a great pleasure to do so. Uh, we do have a final question, and something that we ask uh, all our interviewees uh, the 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 challenging question uh, the crystal ball should be on the table now. Uh, what according to you will be the future of arbitration in the next five, ten years? And I would add specifically, uh, with, uh, with respect to emergency arbitrator pr- proceedings, if you see any changes coming in this area.
0: Well, starting with the latter, I would say that emergency arbitration, it entered the scene about ten years ago and since as a, as a innovative, um, Nobody was quite sure what this new tool was, and it has really grown in in use, and I think it is going to continue to be growing in use, being integrated into the toolbox of dispute resolution mechanisms and becoming more accepted by um, the arbitration community and by courts that may be facing um, enforcement of the decisions. So I think that we will see it um, alive and well and used more. It's already integrated into almost every set of rules.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Patricia Shaughnessy, with this uh, uh, very uh, wise words at the end of the podcast and uh, hopefully with a bright future ahead of us uh, for arbitration. It was a privilege uh, to be part of this fascinating discussion, in particular on emergency arbitration and an honor to have you as our guest at the International Law Talk podcast of Kluwer. Thank you and look forward to seeing you and to have more discussions soon.
0: Thank you. It's truly a pleasure to be on this podcast and particularly to be interviewed by you, Krina. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit
1: com or follow us on social media.